Hey, everyone. We are in conversation with Christine Porath, who is a tenured professor at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. She's the author of the wonderful Mastering Civility and the new book we're going to talk about today, which is titled Mastering Community. In Christine's spare time, she's a consultant and works with the likes of, get this, uh, Google, the UN, United Nations, for those that don't know acronyms, Microsoft, Marriott, for the World Health Organization, seems apropos. Um, but really today, Christine, here we are. We're going to talk and get at the heart of your book, Mastering Community, just released, The Surprising Ways Coming Together Moves Us from Surviving to Thriving. Now, here's where I want to start, if you don't mind, and then um, we'll go from there. And that is, you first define community as follows. A group of individuals who share a mutual concern for one another's welfare. That is different from what most of the world would define community as. And so let's start there. Because those words are purposeful. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it again because we're doing an audio podcast. A group of individuals who share a mutual concern for one another's welfare. That's powerful. Why did you start off with that definition? Well, I guess in true academic form, I felt like I had to define it. So I, and I looked actually, um, as a researcher would, far and wide and it read some of the community books. And I really liked that one, um, that, that pop for me and one of the, um, you know, just popular community books, this idea that we should have concern for one another's welfare. And what I was really looking to cover in, in, reality for community was things like family, religious communities, schools, um, little league, you know, (laughs) you run the gamut in society, but I wanted it to span far and wide kind of in terms of being able to generalize to different groups and for this kind of message to be relevant and hopefully helpful to them. And so I felt like starting with that might be useful uh, to identify. And I I also, I guess, wanted to rule out uh, groups where we might not care about each other or given how divisive society is these days, you know, say I didn't want that to be included within the definition. And here's why, and well, I love it. And here's why I love it is because, you know, I'm a enterprise 2.0 prodigy slash, uh, you know, goof who, you know, grew up in the mid you know, 2000s to 2010-ish when it was de rigueur to say E2O, you know, Andy McAfee and the like, we were all, you know, uh, in his vortex. So, but community for many of us and many people out there, certainly um, a a, a swath of uh, IT technologists, you know, folks out there that are doing collaborative type of work think that community is the sharing of ideas or it's the propulsion of uh, one another's knowledge into a community, into a group of people. Yet the words that you use, which I find fascinatingly cool, you know, mutual concern and for one another's welfare, you're, you're actually speaking about soul, about empathy, about um, the humaneness of people coming together. And so I'm believing that your research is conscious. This is why you've come out with this definition. 
Oh, yeah, I think, um, well, I really appreciate that. So thank you for those kind words. I think, you know, a couple different thoughts come to mind around that. One is the the community that inspired the book is The Mighty, um, which is a digital media company, the largest healthcare community in the world now, uh, which my brother, so I'm biased, founded, and I've seen kind of take off. But really, it's this idea of, you know, these are people that span the globe that are writing in about an issue or share stories and share are very vulnerable about their situation or their care <laughs> or whatever. And I just thought like within their community, I see some, you know, concern for others kind of situation. And for example, when I was talking about this book with Bob Sutton, who's a Stanford at uh, St- a professor at Stanford and has written a lot of great best-selling books, um, one of the things that we had talked about a year or more prior to me starting this book was organizations as bright spots because we felt like we were seeing, even though we've written about like you know really nasty places and toxic places we were seeing examples of just the opposite. And we noticed that there wasn't a whole lot of publicity around this. And we actually felt like perhaps, you know, there were a lot of organizations out there that could be the cure for some of what we just, I described, I guess, at the beginning of this book, which is, you know, people are feeling very isolated, feeling very lonely. And this was all pre-pandemic, but there's just been a lot of trends which suggest that people don't have as much connection as maybe historically people did. And so we really believed that organizations like the ones that you and I tend to focus on in the workplace, um, they really could be bright spots for people. But I think in part with this kind of definition, which is there's some sense of we give a damn about each other. <laughs> you know, we care um, that, that we are concerned for each other, that we have empathy, or at least we attempt to have empathy on a regular basis for colleagues, you know? Um, So I I guess that those would be kind of two reasons why, um, or two examples why I liked that definition. Well, it's, it's beautiful. I love how your, your brother and his work are sort of like a a primary character throughout the book, uh, popping in and out, which was wonderful. You, the three words, if I may, that kept coming back to me, you've already used one of them throughout the book. And I want to kind of dig into these words, not that, um, you know, necessarily they, they are uh, indicative of what entirely the book is about, but they, what, it's what resonated with me as an early reader of the book. And the words are care. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second word is culture. And the third is mindful. So for those that do get into this book, it's uh, the way Christine set it up. There's, there's basically two, two main sections to the book. Uh, and the first, I would argue, at least in my interpretation and how I read it, is really about the organizational care of culture and care of the individual beings inside the organization. And then as you flip into sort of the second part of the book, it's care of yourself and others as individuals, almost from a mindfulness perspective, not mindfulness, the act, but being mindful of people's emotions and their being and so forth. So so let's let's dig into this just for a little bit. So when I say the word care to you, I, I don't know if you do one of those word searches ever in your manuscript, but you've got the word care littered throughout. <laughs> it, it, but it, it goes back to your point of the organizational examples are so hopeful. 
So when I bring up, you know, Marriott mm-hmm. and, and what they do to inculcate a culture of care, tell us a bit about what you've learned with your work at Marriott and some of the things that you brought to the book itself. Yeah. So thank you again uh, for Marriott. I mean, I think one of the things that struck me early was, you know, learning a little bit about their history um, and kind of how it was founded. And for example, you know, the founder, uh, he hired a doctor, you know, which was, you know, totally new and novel uh, back in the day and, and incredibly expensive, you know, and no one had done. Like about a hundred uh, years ago too, right? I, I think the date yeah. is early 19, 1920 or something. Yeah. And so it was just fascinating to me that it really stemmed from the very beginning. And what was beautiful to me also was this idea of they never really left their culture. So you saw them go through, and and I recognize the pandemic was slightly different. So I was having to update that in the in the <laughs> moment, but um, they were remarkable going through major crises and always prioritizing employees and trying to take care. And literally, that's what would come out in the boardroom, like you know, kind of what they were told that they should be doing. And they, you know, Mr. Marriott would say well, we're just going to do the right thing here. We're just going to, you know, keep providing them healthcare benefits, for example, or we're just going to find a way, you know, to get loans and continue paying them. So it just, um, you know, given, like you mentioned, the history of the firm and kind of riding a lot of, you know, potential lows that just occur naturally in society and continuing to prioritize. And really it wasn't words on a wall, which you know we'll, we'll often see or in the value statement, but literally leaders living it. And, and then David Rodriguez, who I've gotten to know the CHRO, um, you know, he would share stories about making these global visits and just kind of seeing things that seem problematic, like within that local culture. And then in response to that, what a hotel would do, you know, like one, one quick example was just bike helmets, you know, like he was driving by and saw this scary sight of a woman on a bicycle with a child, you know, on the back of it, no helmets, you know, on a a road along a cliff and that kind of thing. And he just thought, oh my gosh, you know, this is, this is crazy. Um, And so literally the hotel ran a helmet campaign where locals could come in and decorate bike helmets for themselves and their children and things like that. And I just heard so many examples of that kind of thing that it was really, uh, really wonderful. And then the program that you're probably referring to, Take Care, Mm. which is literally focused, there's like three prongs that focus on opportunity, purpose, and community Um, They really live it. And one of the things that I loved there was, you know, given how global it is, and now because of the merger with Starwood, it's over 700,000 employees, but they have take care ambassadors. So these are people that volunteer all over the world that say, I want to champion this stuff. You know, it's, it's voluntary. um, And then they own it and they come up with creative stuff to do that again is localized. So they're kind of unleashed, which is another theme in the book. Um, but I loved how they were living this. And I was just really wowed by the fact that, um, you know, I would ask for examples to talk to people in different countries and learn more about what they were doing in Thailand and other places and just thought, oh my gosh, you know, like this is wonderful that 
a, a global company that, you know, is publicly traded and everything else is, you know, willing to uh, really make this important for people. So well, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you this anecdote. And I think Marriott shows up about halfway through the book. And I was delighted for two reasons. One is um, when we're leading up to uh, the merger, as you alluded to, I have, I have a, I'm a creature of habit. So I've stayed at the Westin, I think, since the turn of, you know, the 18th century. And so Westin got gobbled up, obviously, by Marriott. And so I was looking uh, for the hurt. I was looking yeah. for the sort of the acquisition, uh, deleterious, you know, effects that the employees would feel at the Westins that I would travel to around the world. And so I, of course, Christine would go in and looking for negativity, right? <laughs> it's like, so yeah. it's awful, isn't it? You know, just setting them right. up for like, actually, no, th this has been incredible. And every, whether it's, whether it was the attendance on the floors, whether it's the front desk, the bells, uh, the bellhops, the, the kitchen, like I honestly went looking for malaise yeah. or hurt and it did not happen. And so when I got to your book and I thought, oh, my gosh, I have to talk to Christine about this because they don't just they don't just talk the talk, as you say, like words on a page or a wall. They walk it, at least my yeah. experience. So I was delighted to see it. Yeah, well, thank you. And um, I had a similar experience. I didn't go in necessarily quite as skeptical as you, but I did. Um, you know, Canadian, I think as an Canadian, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I think as an author, though, you are, it, there's some part of you that thinks like, if I share this example, and then people experience something very different, or it comes out that they did something terrible, because I always try to share like best practices, you know, there's a small piece of you that thinks like, I hope I chose the right one or ones. And it was interesting because as I was working on this book and actually be, a little bit before I started the book, um, I had the opportunity to visit places. This was right after the merger, like Abu Dhabi um, and Kauai and different places that were hotels like you're talking about, which technically were transitioning and it was fascinating. Like I kind of went on, I don't think of myself as an anthropologist, but I remember Dan Pink once saying that. And I thought, yeah, like that's such a cool idea. Like yeah. go be an anthropologist and yeah. do this work. And so I would have these conversations with people and I wasn't planning to use anything. Like I certainly wasn't going to use it against them or what have you, but I think I was using it almost to kind of test those hypotheses to feel more comfortable, even though I would have never described it that way at the time. Um, I think the other thing that came to mind when you shared uh, your experiences and what you were looking for at the Westons was, I, I remember a visit to Marriott headquarters where I was meeting with D David Rodriguez in a little conference room, it was just the two of us, and talking about you know, the take care program and some of these things. And I remember him sharing like that merger and acquisition story, which was I think the GM story that I, or one of them that I share in the book was someone that was skeptical and thought, oh my gosh, you know, we're being acquired, which I know as a professor, like these are usually, you know, not good, cult not good stories, not good outcomes for firms, right? And so what he shared was how that GM actually just Googled it, went to a website, saw the take care program and said, we're going to be okay. Oh, wow. Like we we care about, they care about the same things that we do. And it, it was interesting because David had always preached that like what he had found was people are the same, like we have the same needs. And so it, I think in his and Marriott's thinking, it's very simple, like treat people right, 
you know, like we all kind of want those, the three things that they hit in the take care program. And if we focus on delivering on those things, we're going to be doing, you know, we're going to get 90% there kind of thing. And I just thought it was fast, like, again, stories stick. And so that little GM anecdote of how he felt initially, which was like, oh, no, this is terrible to then pretty quickly thinking, wow, like, we're okay, we're going to be fine. <laughs> and so I really liked that. The, uh, the first half of the book or the first section um, sort of has these, uh, what would you call them, sort of six defining pillars, ultimately, that I would say really craft this culture of care. One of them uh, is, is meaning, one of the six. And so I wanted to dig into this one as well. We'll come back to mindful, mindful uh, care in a second. But on the meaning track, I was so delighted to come across that as well, given I've done a lot of research and purpose and believe in the three levels of uh, essentially job, career, and callings, or a purpose mindset, as I call it. So how how did you come to the conclusion that that had to be one of the kind of six dimensions or pillars uh, to ultimately this, this mastering of community? Yeah, well, a lot of it stemmed from research on what we call thriving. So it was a lot of empirical research, meaning a lot of survey research uh, with co-authors, including Gretchen Spritzer early on, who's at Michigan. And we were looking for like, what are the levers that lead to people thriving? Um, and that showed up as one of them. So this was research that spanned six different, initially six different organizations, very different industries. And we found that that mattered. And so when I had kind of done uh, what I guess is like a very large paper for the Sherm group on how do we build more human workplaces. That one of the ones that I included based on a lot of the empirical research. So it was showing up in, and so I felt like it matters, you know, um, and it's moving the needle, so to speak, for people um, in their sense of thriving. And thriving just as we kind of measured it means people feel like they're moving forward. Like there's a sense of I'm growing or I'm learning and or hopefully I feel alive. I feel vital. You know, I'm energetic. So um, that was one of the ones that really uh, mattered. And also it showed up in the research that I was doing with Tony Schwartz, where we had data from over 20,000 people uh, around like work and life, so to speak. But uh, the meaning mattered a ton, especially on certain outcomes that we were interested in. So I just, I guess as a, maybe I had my scientist hat on or something, the researcher hat, which was it like the data is showing that this matters, even in comparison to maybe some of the more traditional ones that tend to get attention. And so uh, that, that, that was the reason why I felt like it deserved inclusion. Love it. And equally so, um, one of them is respect, which almost pays homage or there's, there's you, you've kind of like said, hey, civility still matters, people. Uh, and so it's one of my six. So heads up, this hasn't gone away. So I was, again, delighted to see that. So do you, do you uh, what, what words do you have or how do you sort of append to the point where respect needs to be there if you're going to have a caring culture? Yeah, I think, again, uh, stemming from the, the research with the 20,000 people, it was the leader behavior that mattered most to people mm -hmm. as far as the outcomes combined. Um, which I wouldn't have expected, even though, as you've alluded to, like, I really 
care about this one deeply. I believe yeah. in it. Yeah. Um, but I, I wasn't biased, at least according to the data. Like that was more important, just to put it in perspective, than um, getting useful feedback, than uh, being appreciated and valued, even than opportunities for learning and growth. So I just felt like, wow, you know, and, and it's interesting because now I think, I think maybe times have changed or leaders are more aware of this one uh, because I was talking to Doug Conant recently, uh, the former CEO of Campbell's and what he, you know, he said he had just finished reading the book and uh, he said like the respect one you know, that's probably the core for you. And he said, actually caring is. So it's interesting that you brought up caring because he said, you know, that's really at the heart of the what you'd recommend to a leader, I think, is care for your people. And I, I think respect is like an important seed for that. But, um, but yeah, I, I just, I hope that the examples in there for showing what a lack of respect can do versus a respect and kind of showing when a culture shifts, um, some of the wins is, you know, motivating to people to prioritize it. Lovely. Well, uh, and just to be clear, uh, so the other four, Unite, Unleash, which you've alluded to, uh, Radical Candor slash Radical Compassion, and then uh, the Boosting of Well-Being. Those are six caring culture dimensions that as you've woven them together in this first section of the book, it sort of, again, came to me like, you actually written a culture playbook. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> and that's, that's, I mean, you could argue, you could argue, one could argue that if you follow the unite, unleash, respect slash civility, radical candor slash radical compassion, meaning slash purpose, and the boosting of well-being, wow, that what a playbook for a leader and or an organizational leaders to, to say, are, are we doing this? And if we're not, what might we do to, in, to invest in our own, you know, uh, be caring, do caring, play caring, have care, you know, kind of like the Marriott example itself that you alluded to earlier. Like that's, that's what I've got from the first half of the book, first of all. Well, thank you very much. I mean, I would love it if that's the case. You know, I think that um, that, that would be wonderful if it helped inspire organizations to consider those, you know, aspects. In a but, then, but then there's like, so honestly, Christine, then there's a bonus <laughs> section to the book, essentially, the way that I see it. And that's where you've, you've articulated, in essence, um, four other dimensions. If I'm not bringing in Ubuntu, which I love because I've written about Ubuntu before, but let's, let's look at the four. And that's sort of this, um, the, the care of a leader and oneself being mindful about their own self or someone else's being. And meaning you, you've articulated, I think it's, um, if I'm going to get this right, self-awareness, the physical well-being, uh, recovery, and then uh, not quite growth mindset, but mindset in general. And so what you're doing, in, in my belief of going through the book, is now you're you're arming the reader with some both suggestions to how they should operate their life, but also you've got all kinds of tips and techniques for you as an individual or a leader of other people or leader of groups or community indeed, and, and helping them see these are the things you've got to do, whether it's sleeping, uh, whether it's investment in your own recovery time, whether it's you know having alone time, if you will, like you've got just a, a, a swath 
of suggestions in the second half of the book. So how did you decide as you're writing the book then to say, okay, well, I'm going to kind of almost focus organizationally up front. And then the second half, there's like this bonus bit for you. Like (laughs) you're reading here, basically. Well, thank you very much. Um, You know, I taught that way. Um, So I, I would oftentimes teach about the organization, the culture, you know, how do you help uh, an organization thrive. And, and with it, you'll see wins not only for, let's say, your team or your company, but also, you know, the employees, let's say, win as well. Um, but I, I thought that there was an, another important piece, which is, you know, something that I had um, worked on a little bit with Tony Schwartz, which is almost like the energy management piece, but yeah. also I just felt like it was important to address, well, you know, we want change, but what about looking at ourselves for how we can change to bring our best to the community? Um, And for me, like the two pieces are in some ways interwoven, um, but I'm not sure, you know, I'm still kind of curious. We'll see what people think about the book. uh, If I wove those together tightly enough, because I knew kind of going in, I was like, are they going to buy buy the pitch, so to speak? Like, is this work or is this two separate books? I felt like somewhere in my heart and soul and, you know, somewhere in my mind, although I probably didn't do the best job of articulating it, that that they were connected, that it mattered. Um, but I, I also was, you know, just doing my best to kind of um, present the, the argument in the book. And one kind of bridge, I would say, is this idea that, that Tony and I found, which is that when leaders um, not only encourage this, but role model it, Mm. then we saw a multiplier effect. So I felt like, again, the data was there to suggest this matters a whole lot and totally changes the outcomes, like literally multiplicatively, if they both live it and encourage it. So if, if part one, let's say you're encouraging it or you're putting certain things in structure, but you're not living it, then you don't get quite the same value as you would if leaders were role modeling it. But I also like the idea that anyone can do this part two of the book and be better off for it. Because, you know, you get questions, I'm sure, as you present also, which is like, well, that's nice. You're using these examples of CEOs, you know, must be nice. Like they have, whether it's the income or the resources or whatever, the power to kind of take care of themselves. What about others. And so I just, in terms of trying to be inclusive, wanted to include, like, hopefully it makes the case, like, anyone can do this and and actually infect their community oftentimes with that. One of the stories in the back half of the book, uh, which I loved because you you almost told the story from the lens of not the main character, but I believe either the brother or the brother-in-law, was the uh, the Seattle Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson? So yeah. it, can you just sort of share a little bit? It's not a spoiler alert because it's in the history of yeah. NFL, but yeah. just like <laughs> set that up for us because it does talk sure. very much around the four pillars of the um, of the mindfulness or self awareness piece. Yeah. So um, so that story is really tied to using a neutral mindset. So this idea of focusing on what you can control. So again, I think that speaks to anyone. And the neutral mindset is about controlling that next play. So in other words, you're letting go of kind of being upset about a play that didn't work out, you're a loss, what have you, and you're just focusing on that next moment and trying to 
you know, affect that for the, for the better. And so the example that I shared, and I had worked some with Trevor Moad, who's a, he was, sadly, he passed away. Um, he was a mental coach, uh, particularly for athletes. So he was Russell Wilson's mental coach for, since Russell graduated from college and close dear friend. And so, you know, one of the, the scenes in the book is about Russell throwing um, what, unfortunately is kind of an infamous pass on the one yard line and then interception and they they lost the Super Bowl as a result of that and um, what you know what naturally might happen to an athlete or person is they kind of crumble or you know they have a hard time shaking it off and in fact Trevor worked with Russell and really what they did was they moved down to San Diego in the offseason focused on highlight reels kind of replaying the positives focused on what he can could control to kind of improve as an athlete. In his case, he's always trying to improve as a person um, and, and just really, you know, bring his best. And in fact, that next year he came back and he was like the NFL high rating uh, passer and, you know, has since led them to Super Bowls and done remarkably well and is won every character award out there for NFL um players. And so I just think he's a wonderful example of, of this. And actually it was interesting because even through the pandemic, I had listened to some podcasts and webinars that I was part of uh, where Russell spoke. And I love the idea of he combined neutral mindset with a dose of gratitude, which is uh-huh. in these t- tough circumstances, like he used the pandemic, um, you know, yeah, obviously it's not what we would choose, but like how are we getting stronger? How are we getting better? What are we doing differently that that we could focus on being grateful for? And so even like the family Zooms, or he was talking about like family time with his kids at home and, you know, all different sorts of examples, giving back to the community. They did this huge campaign with meals um, for underprivileged. And I just, again, like he was a wonderful example. I love sports, so I'm biased to sports examples, but Also, I just, I thought it was a really great way to kind of show how you can do this. And then Harry, who you mentioned, Harrison Wilson, um, fourth, I believe, is his older brother. And there's a company that I've worked with, with him. And he set up a talk for us that was around the scene, which was, you know, kind of what happened immediately after the game as they were waiting for Russell and how they thought it was going to be doomsday, you know, like even um, Russell's mom was grabbing Harry and saying like, what do you think he's going to say? Like, how is he? And so these were about like maybe 10 to 15 of his closest family and friends waiting in a suite for him to show up. And, you know, he showed up and he said like, I'm okay. You know, I'm, I'm good. You know, thank you so much for coming. You know, I am wired to kind of move forward positively with this and I'm getting the words wrong, but the message was, and if you've seen him in action, he brings this like beautiful smile and wonderful spirit and just kind of lights up the room like this, regardless of circumstance. And so um, I just thought it what a great example of kind of living this. It was so embedded in him. And I think you can see this happen like when, you know, the you know stakes are he's pushed against kind of a lot of criticism or whatever else. I feel like um, there's been evidence that he uses this in the moment for good. 
And so anyway, I just, I really liked both him. I admire him, but um, the neutral mindset idea as well. It's wonderful. I I really appreciate the insights there. And speaking of sports, you, you start the book and you end the book with two basketball stories in Mm -hmm. essence, right? With Chicago Bulls, Phil Jackson, Steve Kerr, and um, perhaps uh, Ubuntu at the beginning of what Phil Jackson had created as a as almost a, a First Nations Indigenous respect uh, of of community. There's um, I've studied First Nations. One in particular comes to mind uh, up here in Canada called the Nishka Nation. And the mm-hmm. Nishka Nation have a saying: "It is one heart, one path, one nation." And the beginning of the book with Phil Jackson's and Steve Kerr's anecdotes about what the culture was, the culture of care, uh, reminded me of the Nishka, one heart, one path, one nation. And then you go and end the book with Ubuntu and the story about Doc Rivers and the Boston Celtics. And so maybe maybe we'll end there. Again, it's it, it just summarizes your book so well. Uh, so we, we won't talk about Chicago Bulls, but let's talk about the Celtics and Doc and, and sort of the two seasons and how mastering community is prevalent, sort of that example. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, I think that um, I love that story of Ubuntu and Doc Rivers and just the idea of um, how he used it. So kind of this quick version of the story is he was on a board at Marquette with um, the woman who ran mission and identity and things like that at Marquette. And um, she, she used that word in a break and doc lit up and said, like, that's it. You know, that's the answer for my really struggling Celtics who had had like a terrible, terrible season. And I think he had something like nine, uh, like new players coming in out of 15 or something. And so it was, it was, you know, not an easy situation. And he used this as like the rally cry. They had bracelets with Ubuntu. It was, you know, really embedded in their culture uh, and reinforced. And the players, you know, would break the huddle screaming that and just wore it on t-shirts. They just um, really became kind of the team motto. And they had the biggest turnaround in NBA history. And you know, Doc speaks to like how this happened. And and it's a very short story in the book. So I kind of skip a lot of those steps, but try to tie what the steps would look like in a, in a lot of communities, like organizations, for example. But um, I just thought it was, it. I love the idea. You've obviously written wonderfully about it in the past as well. So um, I, I think it is an answer for us moving forward. And especially nowadays with society kind of being often fragmented in different ways. Mm-hmm. So that was my hope. And in kind of an ironic way, um, my brother, Mike, was actually the one that passed me this article years ago. Uh, so, oh, uh, yeah, okay. I wouldn't have known about it, I don't think. Or, you know, I read a lot of sports stuff, but I didn't catch that. And so um, I hung on to it. I thought it would make the last book. and you know how books go. Sometimes there are wonderful things that you want in there that, that don't end up in there. So, well, it's a, it's a wonderful way to capture uh, what is a wonderful book. And again, it's a part caring culture book, part caring of self and others from a, from an individual perspective. And Ubuntu almost captures both sides because, you know, as legend goes, you know, in, in Africa uh, you have, uh, a bunch of children whom were um, asked to go race to a tree where there was a bowl of fruit. 
And so the first person, the first child gets to the bowl of fruit and waits for the rest of the teammates or, you know, peers to show up. And the, the, the anthropologist, the social scientist is like bemused, befuddled, wondering what the heck's going on, right? And ask the child, like, why didn't you just start eating? You won. This is for you. And like, Ubuntu, like we're in it together. It's a culture of care and it's a culture of right. self-awareness as well. So I thought, oh gosh, I had to, I had to talk to Christine about this. So it's, it's great. Yeah. I love that. Thank you for sharing that story. Cause I, I did not break down exactly what it is, but I think that idea of interconnectedness is really mm. at the heart of it. Um, so I hope that that is a message going forward for all of us. Well, the book is Mastering Community. The surprising ways coming together moves us from surviving to thriving. Christine, where can we find you, the book? Tell us a bit more where folks might uh, reach out to you. Um, I have a website, so it's just christineporath.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter mainly um, at porathc, and I'm on LinkedIn. Um, so those are all areas where I try to be present. <laughs> well, uh, you are amazing in what this book has brought to me selfishly. But I know it's one that I'll be recommending. It's a, it's a wonderful guide and playbook for you as an individual who may be leading teams, but also for the organizational leaders who need, frankly, to wake up and find themselves a better playbook. It's a, it's a hopeful book. It's so positive. You know, sometimes you read books and there's just negative story after negative story. This was just one of joy. So thanks for writing a joyful book. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We've been in conversation with Christine Porath. Uh, thanks, everyone. And uh, pick up a copy, Mastering Community, in stores now. <laughs>